This podcast is not <laughs> I think this was the first right, time. We Let's just, re rewind. We just... Money. From saving coins to buy goodies, to securing funds for a roof over our heads, our quest for money affects almost every aspect of our lives. Money defines the wealth of nations, the power of corporations, the fabric of our communities, and in many ways, money informs our very experience of ourselves as a human being. This podcast is not about making or spending more money. We are setting out to find everyone's pot of gold. Today we speak with Polly Spain, an activist in public housing, home to over 400,000 families in New York City. She is a tenant association president, a neighborhood organizer, and a public school teacher. Polly resides on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and she's not only a volunteer leader in her own 70-unit building where she serves as president, but she serves on the local community board of oh, that serves over 200,000 people, as well as an activist member of the United Federation of Teachers. I'm, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> All right. I like it. All right. So Polly is a Tenants Association president or former president. Which are you? I am uh, still a president, still president. of uh, public housing uh, uh, building since 2009. Um, and I've also sat as the vice chair of the Manhattan South District Council Presidents, uh, which presides over 47 public housing uh, developments in New York City. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a lot of public housing developments. Yeah. And how many people live in public housing in New York City? Um, um, the last point, actually over 400,000 families live in public housing uh, throughout the five boroughs of New York City. Um, and that number is rising as we speak. As a European, I was astonished to learn how many families live in public housing. You know, like 400,000 people that's basically the size of most of our cities in Europe. In Europe, for sure. But public housing is also where we see our biggest social challenges, unemployment, education, healthcare. In fact, 15% of our public school students in New York City live in public housing, and 22% of the city employees live in public housing. Those numbers are just incredible to me. You know, I cannot imagine any issue more important for a healthy human being than having a home. That was the vision for public housing once upon a time, especially after World War II, to provide affordable accommodation for millions of young families. Yeah. But according to Polly, that vision really went awry. We've had serious problems in the past with roofs, Leaking. Um, when it would rain, you would have to take an umbrella and open it up uh, because the water would just pour down uh, through the vents to the lobby, which would shut down the elevators because there would be water on top of the elevator shafts. So that would shut down the two elevators. So therefore, if you're in a wheelchair, because we do have two residents in a wheelchair, you could not get in or out of the building. So in addition to that, uh, with that problem, we have severe leaking, uh, pipes bursting. So it's dangerous because we can have an electrical fire because I've had neighbors who said they've been shocked when they touch an outlet because of that oh as God. well. Uh, when we talk about mold issues, uh, bathroom issues where you have mold that's there 
uh, covering ceilings for years, basically, and residents have had to wash that continuously with Clorox and bleach. But nothing's really worked because if uh, every time it rains and there's leaking, the water's going to go throughout the walls of the building again. So it's a domino effect. So, and in addition to that, currently we have a severe rat problem, rodents that are as huge as uh, small kittens in front of the building, uh, which we have reported to <laughs> New York City Housing Authority and other health departments and other agencies. So imagine walking out of your building and you have a huge rodent running across your foot. That's a New York, I think it's a different species than yes, a rat. It's a it New is. York rat, yes. right? <laughs> and then I've spoken to neighbors who said that they have to keep their windows closed because they've had rats climb up the wall oh my God. to get into the apartment. <laughs> so they're terrified. They can't open the window during a nice spring day for fear of being attacked by a rodent. In addition to that, Unfortunately, uh, our building sometimes is used as a public urinal. So you might walk down the stairs and there's urine and feces on the stairwells. And even though we're told we have a maintenance caretaker every day that should be cleaning and sweeping and wiping this up, that doesn't always happen because we're being told that they're short staff. So, you know, as a person who lives in public housing, you do what you can. Sometimes you clean your own floor, you wash your own elevators down, and you know you do what you can to kind of maintain some semblance of normality and living in a clean environment. So that's how we deal with that. You know, as an architect, I know that even the most beautiful homes and these buildings have great bones, great potential, some of them really fantastic design even, can turn into a cave after decades without maintenance how to keep a sense of dignity in that type of a place. No kidding. It was pretty crazy. And what kind of system allows people's homes to decline like that over a period of decades? I can't believe it. The incentive structures are all messed up. And here's how Polly explains it. As an educator, as a community activist, you know, I've looked at different aspects of life. And I look at poverty as an industry. And why I say that is that the way it's designed and set up, you know, and then I'm going to take public housing, for instance, and you talked about the change, you know. And I'm saying, okay, when it first started out, we had this ideal model, you know, it was a socialist uh, mindset there. And then I'm saying, okay, how come, you know, X amount of percentage of the population is still stuck in public housing and can't seem to migrate out no matter how hard you try, right? And then I looked at the sectors, as I said, the way it's broken up. And then I looked at public schools. And then I saw that most of the students who went to the public schools that I worked in, which were in the more, you know, economically deprived communities, such as Washington Heights. I've worked in um, on Spanish Hall, you know, all these South Bronx, you know, Bed-Stuy. And then I did my own survey as an educator because I really wanted to understand what the problem are not only economically, but socially, because by me having a background in special ed. So I said, okay, I'm noticing that most of them live in public housing. You go to public school, right? And then I noticed that the public schools seriously look like correctional facilities. I had a friend who works in a correctional facility out in Maryland. And then I'm looking and I'm saying, hmm, I noticed something in common. Okay. 
most of the public schools have them, bars on the windows, the gates, and the, and the cinder block in the hallways. It looks like the same cinder block in public housing, the same floors, the same tile. So I said, okay, are we being conditioned? Is the child being conditioned to get used to this environment? Wow. And then you go to public school, it looks like the same place you just left. Right. And then you end up as a pipeline. And I'm just going to be honest. With you, I feel that a lot of public schools are pipelines to prisons. You go into the prison system. It looks the same. And I was like, wow, epiphany. Hmm. So I'm thinking, yeah, poverty is an industry. Somebody's child has to go to jail. OK, because we know that the correctional institution, that's an industry. Okay. And I wanted to know why does a child that's born with a clean slate, how does that child turn into uh, a rapist, a murderer, a burglar, whatever, you know, how do they end up there? And again, I'm looking and I'm saying, all right, to me, in my opinion, I feel that from birth, all right, it's designed that way. It's designed that way. I mean, did you really just say that public schools look like prison and prisons look like public schools? Basically, there is no difference. In New York, that's actually pretty true. You know, uh, we were walking down the street on the Upper West Side, passing a school, and I remember you asking me, what are those bars on the window for? I mean, it wasn't supposed to be there in the first place, right? But we've evolved to this um, context of fear where, you know, even our kids need protection with bars or vice versa. The neighborhood needs protection from the kids. It's not clear who's protecting whom. Wow. So what struck struck me about this uh, quote from Polly is just how much experience she has in so many facets of New York City. Right? She's talking about she talks about her experience in education and in public housing, and then her different positions in all of the boroughs, not just this one little neighborhood that she lives in, mm. but in the Bronx, in Brooklyn, in Staten Island. She really has a grasp of what's going on system wide. She has understood that this is a system, an underlying system, and which kind of pops up even on a visual level. You know, when she compares um, the, the public school with looking like a prison, I mean, how crazy is that? Yeah, I mean, who wants, do you want your child to be raised in a prison or a prison looking like public school? Nobody yeah, wants to have yeah, that. It's, I, it's, it's crazy. It's nuts. Yeah, I've never heard of that visual connection, but it's so powerful, right? I mean, you can it see the, the commonality, the common thread yeah. that she brings. She drives that home so powerfully. It's the first time I actually hear something actively being actively engaged in the community, seeing this and addressing that issue. Yeah, where this is where, for me, the monetary system is coming, like becoming visible. Yeah, and so in a way, so obvious, yeah, that the, the same kind of walls, the same kind of bars are used, yeah, which in a way, you know, from a contracting point of view, um, is, is maybe, maybe logic because you're saving up money, yeah, you're getting a contract and you're just using the same material. And, but from a design point of view, nor from a society point of view, this doesn't make sense at right. all for us. Not they, at all. But she does draw that pattern. And I kept asking, well, why, you know, who let this continue to happen like this? Why are prisons and schools and housing, like, designed not only that way, but the decline of that 
housing and those schools. Who let that happen? Why did we let that happen? Right. You said it was actually even worse in the 70s, right? It was. And, uh, you know, New York City was, uh, you know, very uh, dangerous in the 70s. There was a lot of crime, a lot of violence, a lot of uh, unemployment. Uh, public housing was at one of its all-time lows. Uh, and we did kind of climb out of that at that time. But I don't think to the point of really investing in this, in the population of people using public housing. In fact, it feels like that population became more and more narrowly defined. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think now you have an isolated community in public housing that is also a significant percentage of the public schools. And then like, like Polly showed, they may move on to prison. And so we have this uh, single population kind of rotating through these institutions without real um, intervention. The crazy thing for me, what I think we don't, we, we need to sort of realize as society is like how interconnected we are with people who live in public housing. And there is, as in our conversation, Polly kind of pointed out that there is also a stigma of how, you know, we and us <laughs> see them, which doesn't really exist, right? It could be you and me living right. there. Um, depending on our situation. It's really just the circumstances. Totally, totally. It's easy to assume that these populations don't have an impact on greater society. But I think we both know that's absolutely not true. It feeds all of our quality of life. All of our government systems, all of our monetary interactions have a problem because we're not paying attention to public housing and schools and prisons. Yeah, she said something like somebody has to go to jail, you know, which is fundamentally against the, that every one of us has the birthright of being prosperous. Yeah, prosperity is our birthright. And within that system, in that current system, that is not happening. Well, I think she says that, like, somebody's child has to go to jail. She's like, we have the jail. We have all these industries relying on jail. So in order to prop up those industries, we have to have a pipeline of people using those facilities. And so she's basically saying, you know, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You build the jail and then you've got to have the people to populate it and then to support it. And it's yeah. a whole economy. Mm. I love when she says poverty is an industry. Because that's what right. she's pointing out. Yeah. We're going to have another episode on the justice system and the connection to money. So let's not dive too much into this here. Um, what I also like, what she had included in her um, saying about this vision, you know, that we had this vision once of, um, and it actually really worked well, even in, in New York, right, where they were proud to be inhabitants of public housing. And then it had deteriorated all this time. And she now gives us a concrete example why that system no longer works, that there is no incentive to get out of that system. And so let's listen into that. I worked with young children who were babies, like five years of age. And I didn't know until I started working in the public school system, they had something called SSI, which is Social Security Income. I mean, you don't have to work. You have to either have some kind of disability, usually it's the brain or the back or something. So I had all these young children who were listed as being learning disabled. And then um, you get something like 800 and something dollars per child, all right, if your child is classified as disabled. 
So I would sit with the parents because I'm working, helping them to, you know, learn how to read. And I'm saying, why don't you want your child to be declassified as special ed? And they said, because I need the money. Okay, I need that check every month. So then what happens is a lot of the parents uh, get a drug called Ritalin or something like that for their child because that's part of demonstrating that their child has a disability. Okay, so the child's coming in all drugged up. And I'm like, and again, this was like something I had to learn. And I'm saying, why would a parent want their child to be drugged up, you know, incoherent and, you know, go through this until he or she is 21? And then they realize it's economics again, okay? So I'm saying to myself, all right, so then what is my role in this? Because I'm thinking I'm an educator. My job is to educate this child. And then I'm looking because I'm saying, all right, 10 years from now, this child's going to be 15, 18, 21 years of age, right? This child's going to be used to using drugs. So you have that population that's going to be a drug addict. How are you going to work and get a job if you're used to being a drug addict for 20 years, right? You've been sedated, basically, right? Now you're 21. You better hope you continue to get SSI, right? But if you don't, what are you going to do? You can't read. You can't write. You don't have your diploma. How are you going to get a job? When you're hungry, what are you going to do? You're going to go and rob, right? Where are you going to go? You're going to go to the jail. Well, you're used to jail because school looked like jail for 20 years. Bars on the window, you're going through the scanning oh, wow, system. I mean, this is some deep stuff, you yeah, know, and I'm, I'm just keeping it real. And I'm observing all of this and I'm saying, okay, if I'm conditioned to go through a scanner now and I have to disrobe and, you know, and I'm used to that environment, well, jail is nothing to me. It's like home, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's why I say poverty is an industry. Uh, listening to this makes me really sad because you can see the down spiral a child is in, right? This is, there is basically no way of getting out of that system, right? It's, it's something I, you know, within playing quality money game, you can see the dance spiral, but not as much as we have here. Well, they've enrolled. It's interesting because you're talking about a system created as an industry, right? With this pipeline, but it makes actually the participants of that system, the victims of that system, complicit, right? Yeah, so the exactly. parents are now saying, you know, mm-hmm. I can't raise up my child because I'll lose out and then I can't feed my child. So it's a, a, a what do you call it? A Faustian bargain or something like that where, you know, mm. they either can feed their child or teach their child, but they can't do both. And uh, it's, it's it, by design a ridiculous system. Failure. Failure and perpetuating failure, right? Perpetuating a part of our society that can't participate. So Polly clearly points out how the financial incentives are structured to keep the system in place and move people from one stuck home to the next without a path out. That's basically it. Yeah, but she keeps on pushing. Polly never stops. She keeps reaching out and connecting to new people as long as I've known her. And she's willing to work with anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone. I'm, I'm so inspired by how she's always looking for new solutions. Well, what keeps me in the game is hope, you know, in the sense that, um, as I said earlier, you know, I feel like I have a responsibility because I understand all this to uh, do something about it, you know, not to just turn the other cheek and just, 
you know, they, oh, well, you know, that's their problem. You know, so I feel like those who can, that we have a responsibility to think about the next generation. And so my hope is to get involved, all right, with anyone who wants to make a change in a positive direction for the next generation. So that's why I'm here speaking to you and putting the word out and hoping that we can put our heads together and, you know, reach out and make a difference. Our next step is to invite Polly and some colleagues to join our Care Economy Meetup, where she'll meet other activists from communities all over the world, all inventing new ways to build local economies, new currencies, new cooperatives, all kinds of things. And we're hoping some of their ideas will spark Polly's imagination. I have no doubt about it. Imagine if residents of New York public housing could actually invent their own money like they did in Ghent, Belgium, and use it to train and pay local residents to repair their own apartments and maintain their grounds. They could even involve local businesses to create a thriving microeconomy within New York City. Just imagine that. Wow, that would be so awesome. In our next episode and in this series, we'll track Polly's adventures to Switzerland and what she discovers there. We hope you'll tune in. In the meantime, if you would like to get more info about this or other episodes, please sign up for our newsletter or contact us at polymoney.org. We love hearing from you. 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 We're a listener-supported, independent podcast coming to you from New York City and Lausanne, Switzerland. Thanks to our producer, Riley Paul, and our composer, Paul Cicetti. Please join related discussions and more on our website at polymoney.org. I'm Stephanie Overberg. And I'm Mel Wymore. Thanks for listening. listening.